When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Hello, my wife. Hi. Hot one today in <laughs> Southern Connecticut. It Just, sure is. Should we do our, our standard? We, uh, for new listeners, we do the weather every time we begin the show. <laughs> we just give a quick check in on, you know, what the weather's doing here near us when we're recording. God, wouldn't that be awful? <laughs> hopefully just whatever use you can put that to in your day. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but today was so hot that I saw three different adult men in different cities of Connecticut, wearing their shirts on their heads like turbans. <laughs> and just going bareback. Like Tony Stark returning from the desert. Interesting. Um, That's very desperate. Yeah, so I thought, what better for a hot day than a cool story? Okay. And that's why we're finally, <laughs> Caroline, finally getting to the Travis Walton UFO incident. Mm-hmm. This is, as you know, and as our listener likely knows, one of the best known and best publicized, certainly, alien abduction stories in American history. Maybe just behind Betty and Barney Hill, our, our old friends? I didn't hear about the Travis Walton story till a few years ago uh, on another show. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like Betty and Barney Hill are kind of the main... The people you, like everyone knows, maybe? Everyone should know George Adamski. He's my personal favorite. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's a, an even, you know, deeper dive, I uh, think. I'm an Adamski, Adamski, you know, stan. Right. I feel like people know Betty and Barney Hill. They know Roswell. They know uh, Area 51 conspiracies and, and, sure. and vague other stuff. But Travis Walton's a very interesting story. Um, yes, and for those not in the know, on November 5th, 1975, a logger named Travis Walton was abducted by a UFO. Uh, sometimes you'll see a lumberjack Travis Walton was, but I actually found out during our axe murder series that lumberjack is like a subculture. It's not just a job. You have to be like a, an itinerant, like moving from place to place, uh, living in hobo communities in the 1930s. Like, I don't know if anyone's actually a lumberjack anymore in the sense mm. that they meant that word. Anyway, um, <laughs> Travis Walton was a logging worker, a forestry worker who was abducted by a UFO in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest of Arizona. Again, this was November 5th of 1975. Walton claims that he reappeared five days and six hours later on the side of a road near Heber, Arizona. But when his, you know, f friends or when his friends and family came to collect him, you know, from the, from the side of the road, uh, Walton thought only hours had passed. And was he really missing for five days? He, 
well, was he missing is a big word, but mm. uh, yes, there were, five days did pass between the date of his uh, abduction and when Travis came home. Mm-hmm. Um, Travis's story was told in a book that he wrote called The Trav- the Walton Experience. Actually, I think he <laughs> published it as The Travis Walton Story and then republished it as The Walton Experience. And um, then some movie producers, some big Hollywood movie producers, picked it up and released it as the 1993 film Fire in the Sky, after which Travis re-released his book again, now under the title Fire in the Sky. Oh, Okay. So, Fire in the Sky is the third title this book has had, uh, had, but in the book, this is how Travis lays out events. On Wednesday, November 5th, 1975, Travis was one of a seven-man logging crew working a tree-thinning contract in Apache Sitgreaves National Forest in Arizona. Um, you know, tree thinning, you're cutting some of the trees down. You're not clear cutting the area, but you're um, allowing more room for faster growth for the trees you leave behind. Mm-hmm. So common forest management technique. And you got to have a bunch of guys go into the tree with saws to do this. So um, am I dumb that I just don't think of Arizona as a place with forests? Huge forests. Lots of <laughs> national parks. Yeah, no, that I know, um, but I yeah, always think of it as very deserts and canyons and, and, and sandy. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, once you get into valleys and canyons, you can have a lot of, uh, yeah. cool areas. Uh, the, the town Travis Walton lives in is called Snowflake, um, but oh. I don't think it's very cold most of the year. <laughs> the boss of the crew was Mike Rogers, and he was the oldest of the seven guys at 28 years old. Um, the others were Alan Dalis, John Goulet, Dwayne Smith, Kenneth Peterson, and Steve Pierce. Um, Travis tells us that this was the best per acre bid Mike had ever gotten on a contract. He was, you know, uh, kind of really starting to make a name for himself in the industry. And this was, uh, this, I think it was a state contract was the most he'd ever gotten paid to, uh, go and cut down some trees. And did this team typically work together? Uh, Travis had worked on a crew with Mike before. I know that he, he, yes, he references past relationships enough that they, they definitely are used to working as a crew. Okay. Um, so they're out there, they're working, and they're joshing around as boys do. Uh, at one point, Alan uh, cut a tree down right next to Travis, like Travis saw the shadow coming down and went, oh, and had to step back, and uh, down comes this tree. So <laughs> that's a pretty, so good, funny. pretty good bit, I guess. Oof. He said Alan was like leering at him, and uh, Travis was pissed off about it, and they had like a little a little argument, but they, they put, put it behind him. Um, worked until sunset. And then um, piled their saws, chainsaws, you understand, their uh, chainsaws and their gas cans into the back of this pickup truck. And the seven men crammed into the extended cab for the hour and 20 drive back to town. Wow. Okay. Um, Travis notes that the smokers got in the back seat and the non-smokers in the front seat. Um, But I mean, come on. That's the old joke about a, a peeing section in a pool, right? Yeah, I don't think that's going to really do it. I mean, you have the windows open. Maybe it's not blowing back directly in your face. That's really it. <laughs> um, so small, small compensation, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so the boys are bumping on down the road. They said this was a, a, a crappy old pickup truck of Mike's, and they're all cracking jokes about how shitty it is as they're as they're bouncing bouncing along. And that's when Travis first saw the light. Like a revelation? Uh, well, it would be, uh, ultimately. It would change the course of his life. 
whether it was a real thing or not. Um, the light was a radiant yellow light, maybe a little bit hazy, that Travis suddenly saw um, just over the treetops. And he said at first he thought, oh, just the sun setting. His brain kind of filtered it out. And then he went, wait a second, the sun set while we were working mm-hmm. back there. So then he's thinking, well, it must be like Hunter's lights, he thought. Like Hunter's were uh, had their truck parked there or maybe a campfire. But it was really bright, like too bright for that. And now the other guys in the truck are starting to see it. Mm-hmm. And as each man catches sight of the strange light in the trees, um, the truck falls silent. And the light seems to get brighter. And now all the guys are craning their neck. They're still driving uh, down this road through the woods. But Mike now takes the car off onto like a uh, side path and they start driving to try to get a look at what this thing is. Uh, Dwayne, Travis has Dwayne yelling, it looked like a crashed plane hanging in a tree. Hmm. Um, Can they make out anything else besides light? No, because there's like trees in the way. It's like, you know, light flickering, constant tree interference. And then finally, they drive into a clearing where they can, uh, for the first time, get a clear view at what is producing all this light. And that is when Alan, the same guy who had cut the tree down on Travis's head earlier, uh, yelled, My God, it's a flying saucer. Oh. Which you don't get to hear your uh, coworker yell that every day. No, I don't think I ever have. Um... So a flying saucer. Obviously, these guys already know what a flying saucer is. They describe it as such as they're looking at it. And indeed, what Travis has in this book is the the boilerplate uh, flying saucer in many respects. It is a metallic golden disc. It's not silver. It's golden. Um, floating about 30 yards away from where the truck was. The truck's still moving at this point. It's kind of slowing down a little as they, they look at this uh, ship. And where, where are the lights coming from? The entire hull of the ship was glowing with this bright but hazy yellow light. Like mm-hmm. sunlight, I guess. Mm-hmm. The ship was hovering stationary, not moving at all. And then they said it was low to the ground, just a few yards, a few meters above the ground. Travis says, The hard mechanical precision of the luminous vehicle was in sharp contrast to the primitive ruggedness of its dark surroundings. He says it was about 15 feet across and 8 to 10 feet thick. So that's actually like a kind of a small, fat little ship, right? Not that big. And uh, he describes the shape as two giant pie tins, lip to lip. So which pretty typical. It's exactly what people say about Mm -hmm. flying saucers. Um, All of the men in the truck were transfixed, but the truck was still rolling as suddenly Travis was seized with an urge to hug this spaceship, apparently. Hug it. Uh, yeah, he, he said, I was suddenly seized with an urgency to see the craft at close range. I was afraid it would fly away, and I would miss the chance of a lifetime to satisfy my curiosity about it. Hmm. And uh, here I'm going to play a little clip from the film Fire in the Sky, uh, where this uh, moment where, the, where Travis makes contact with the UFO is dramatized. Hmm. What's he doing out there? Get back to the truck! What the hell is that? That's the guy from the cutting edge. Get back in the truck! Uh, the Terminator, the T-1000 is in this, and also Peter Berg. Get out of there! What is it? I don't know what Who's that Peter is. Peter Berg? Oh, strange. 
yeah, the spaceship is like made of lava in this. <laughs> it's glowing. Hey, Mike! Taylor's get out of there! Leave the son of a bitch here if he's gonna be an asshole! So the guys are not happy. <laughs> oh, no. Um, Travis, in the book, he doesn't have anyone yelling, leave the son of a bitch here if he's gonna be an asshole. Mm-hmm. But he gets out of the truck while it's still moving and starts to run toward the ship. Stuffing his hands in his pockets as he goes, he says. So uh, now I'm picturing like kind of a Naruto (laughs) run that he's doing. Uh, Travis's friends yell, hey, Travis. He turns and looks at them and then presses on toward the ship. But, But they've shaken him back to reality a little. So he's a little more cautious. And Travis said when he got about six feet away from being directly underneath this saucer, he started to hear a sound. Like low, heavy machinery rumbling. And that was mixed with an intermittent, high-pitched beep. Coming from the ship. Yes. Mike yelled out one last warning. Travis, get away from there! A warning Travis ignored. Uh, And this, I'm going to go back to the clip from the movie. This does not look like Travis describes it in the book. There's a lot of... um, well, we'll talk about it, but this movie w- was... was uh, uh, It took liberties. It took liberties, yes. Dramatic liberties. Travis, get back here! Travis! So the spaceship is glowing. By the way, for the listener, this spaceship looks like... Um, like lava rock yeah it's also much bigger than travis described it to be peter berg's the guy with the hat and the glasses who keeps saying to get the hell out of here okay (laughs) good for him So we have Travis frozen in a beam of light. Typical UFO stuff. He's thrown off his feet. I feel like you still wouldn't leave him even if he was dead, but okay. I, they, they yell he's dead like 40 times. <laughs> um, in reality, Travis heard this sound like turbine generators start. I say in reality. In the book, <laughs> Travis heard a sound like turbine generators starting up and the ship began to wobble back and forth. And then suddenly from its bottom side fired a bright blue green ray at a very startled Travis. Now, Travis says he felt something like a high-voltage electrocution and then quickly went unconscious. Okay. The other loggers saw Travis arch back, his arms outstretched. Did they see the beam of light? Yes. Okay. And as it hit him, he, he arched back, and then the force of the beam, like we just saw in that clip, hurtled Travis 10 feet backward, and he uh, hit the ground. Mm-hmm. Crumpled to the ground, really, and lays motionless. At which point, Steve said, "It got him." <laughs> uh huh. And Dwayne said, "Let's get out. Let's get out of here." And Alan said, "Get this son of a bitch moving." 
And then Mike, as he's already driving, is it following us? So these these other six guys... They just abandoned him. In a panic. Like he flew back. There's no blood. And they're all loggers. It's not like this is like a group of... um, I don't know, like like the the nuns out to see the um, Broadway musical on the bus or something. Uh, it's um, it doesn't look good for them, I would say. Um, so they flee the area until they're sure that this alien spaceship isn't following them, um, and then had a quick argument over whether Travis had been disintegrated or not. Some of the men swore that they had seen him uh, disintegrated, and therefore there was no point in going back. <laughs> okay. Most of the guys said that, no, we definitely saw him lying there. But they all sort of agreed he seemed dead the last time they saw him. Okay. So there's more hemming and hawing, during which Mike thought he saw the same disc fly over the horizon, away from where Travis had been. And then he insisted on going back to check on Travis, much to Mike's credit. Yeah, seriously. Travis gives Mike a lot of credit here for for basically insisting... Like, I'm going, the truck's going. Um, you you can guys all, can get out if yes, you want. Yes, you can get out if you want. I'll leave you here. But I, we have to go now and check on Travis. Or his body. Mm-hmm. When the men returned to the clearing, they found no Travis, no disturbed earth, no, dis- no tracks, and no sign of struggle. Just nothing at all hmm. to indicate that anything had happened. And they were all driving back in relative silence to the town of Heber, where they had started from that morning. And they realized they were probably going to tell local authorities about what had happened. Well, they're going to have to explain why their friend's dead or disintegrated. Exactly. It's not going to look good on them. No. (laughs) Now, for Travis's part, he says that he woke up in pain. I just see this still on the screen right now. Oh, yeah, no, we're not going to play that clip for a long time, so get used to it. (laughs) Travis woke up in pain, feeling like he was burned on both his insides and his outsides. Feeling incredibly weak with a metallic taste on his tongue. He says he was thirstier than he had ever been. Mm -hmm. Opening his eyes, he found himself in a triangular room. He spends a lot of time on how confused he was. He was like, I thought my eyes were playing tricks on me. One side of the ceiling was wider than the other. And then it turns out the ceiling is triangular. So he's in a, he's in a triangular room. Well, it's not something we're used to, I guess. Um, and he was lying on a raised table under some kind of a light fixture hanging from the ceiling. And Travis's first thought, he says, was, oh, good. I've been brought to the emergency room. I, I was obviously injured and uh, I'm here where someone can help me. Nope, everyone left you there. (laughs) All of your friends left you behind, and this is your life now, Travis. (laughs) Um, Looking down, he says he saw a shiny, dark gray device. Um, And I I picture it very sleek and smooth, kind of an Apple product. Um, Four or five inches thick, covering his body from his armpits to his waist. Mm -hmm. Um, Almost like some kind of a scanner or something. Mm Mm-hmm. And he describes himself looking at this thing and studying it. And then he says, I looked up above that and saw the blurry faces of the doctors. So it's like, oh, you spent, it's like, it it feels like he spent time studying this and then looks up and goes, oh, there you are. Um, The doctor's faces were still blurry and he could see their white masks and their uh, white, you know, caps that doctors wear, the little paper caps and their strange orange surgical gowns. Those aren't doctors! (laughs) 
Or in surgical gowns. Is this dead ringers? Um, it turns out that those weren't masks at all, but the white visages of his horrible captors. Oh no, horrible captors. Travis realized he was looking into what he calls huge, luminous brown eyes the size of quarters. How romantic. I don't know that quarters are like freakishly big. For no, the, us. the eye is about the size of a quarter. Yeah. Usually. I mean, we don't see a quarter right. size of maybe it. Maybe he was seeing, maybe the eye was more like a, I don't know, a billiard ball. Or he might have meant like the iris. Maybe. Was a, a, like a quarter size, because that would be big. Mm-hmm. But still not monstrous. He, he described it's almost the only thing he. The first time he mentions them, that's the only descriptor he gives, and he goes these horrible creatures. And I was like, what? Just because they got big eyes, like it's kind of cute. <laughs> um, but he later says they were just under five foot tall, vaguely humanoid in shape, with five fingers on each hand. But he says their thin bones were covered with white, marshmallowy looking flesh. Now, when Travis says thin bones, I do not know if he means he could see the bones because their skin was kind of hanging off of them and that mm-hmm. the bones themselves were thin. Or like they, little they bird were, bones? They were, yeah, they were like bird-like and very... Or are they just skinny? Fragile. Yeah, I don't know. And marshmallowy looking flesh doesn't sound like it would be pulled taut over bones to me. So it's all weird. I don't know what to make of the description, but they're like <laughs> marshmallow creatures. <laughs> okay. Sounds delicious. Um, they're wearing orange suede overalls that were loose and billowy, but gathered at the wrists and the ankles. Very 70s. Very 70s. And I think it's also how, it's definitely how George Adamski describes Orthon Venus dressing. And it might be how Betty and Barney describe, uh, how Barney described one of his uh, captors. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, I have in my notes here, it says, we've seen this before. (laughs) Um, The creatures had no fingernails, no hair, and he says about a size four shoe. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if Travis had worked in a shoe store at one point, but he assessed these things real quick. Like, oh, it's a little foot. Uh, and they've, oh, yeah, like I said, big irises. He does specify that. And giant baby heads. Like their heads are proportionally uh, big to their bodies. Too big. So they look like little babies. <laughs> so as he's taking all this in, realizing now that he's surrounded by these three horrible creatures with their quarter sized eyes. Uh, Travis reacted like Thor did in that first movie when he was in the hospital and he like just tries to punch him. (laughs) Okay. Um, and he says that they were on making contact. He found that the alien or alien doctor or whatever it was doing, um, this alien was squishy, soft and weak. And as his fist made contact, it like, you know, like squished into the alien. And then the alien like went flying backward against the wall. (laughs) Okay. Like into the wall and then fell into a pile on the ground. Uh, and he, he looks, or he kind of casts his eyes around for something to use as a weapon and basically grabs. Bro, I think your fists are fine. Well, he, he basically grabs it. He grabbed a test tube. Okay. So they have test tubes. And he says he thought, well, it's a, it's, it's a glass tube. Mm-hmm. And then he tries to break it like you would see in a bar fight or something, <laughs> uh, but it didn't break. It didn't break, so it's like a plastic test tube. <laughs> and he uh, whacks it on something, and then he just sort of brandished that at the aliens, <laughs> which is hilarious to picture. Um, but it seemed to work because the aliens kind of went oh and backed I mean, out. He, they ju- he just yeeted their friend into the wall with just a punch. Yeah. So they don't want to see what he's going to do with this test tube. They they sort of back out of the room or where he's going to put it. Yeah. 
Now, Travis waited a few minutes, and then when he was sure they weren't coming back, he headed uncertainly into the hall. Because this was, I mean, if this was the ship that he had seen when he was with his friends, then uh, it, it's bigger on the inside, right? Because he, <laughs> he's, like he's now walking down a hallway. And Travis says he popped into the second door he found. The first, he's, he passes by the first door, and then he talks about this kind of inner debate he has with himself at the second door, and he's like, what am I doing? I'm not going to find anything just walking down this hallway. So uh, he, he decides that he has to choose a door at some time, and he walks through this door. Uh, Travis found himself in a domed room 16 feet across. Always very exact measurements. I mean, maybe he has to be good at measuring because of being a logger. Well, you have to be. know where the tree's falling and such. He says the room contained nothing but a chair in the middle with uh, lots of buttons, control buttons on both armrests, like a, like a James T. Kirk chair. Mm-hmm. Um, and as he got closer to the center of the room and the chair, the room darkened, or his perception darkened, and Travis began to be able to make out a star map in all directions. Like a three-dimensional star map kind of popped out as he got closer to the center of the chamber. Hmm. So, because apparently Travis has never played Dungeons and Dragons, and certainly he hasn't played Call of Cthulhu, <laughs> uh, Travis sat down in the chair and start, started pushing buttons. You're going to press like the explode ship button. Exactly. That's what would happen in Call of Cthulhu. Um, <laughs> total rookie move, but uh, all that happened was he pressed a couple buttons and some stuff popped up on a screen somewhere. And then Travis pushed on a lever that he saw. Never pushed the lever, certainly. No. And the star map slowly began to rotate around him. Uh, Travis suspected he might be flying the spaceship <laughs> and left the chair behind. Yeah. But then as he got back toward the outer edge of the room, he found that the door he had entered through was gone. The room was into, like the whole circumference of the room was covered in door-like rectangles, but none of them were open including whatever he had walked through. So he had no idea how he had entered the room or where he was supposed to exit through. Until, with a whoosh, a door, a door opened up and a helmet-headed human man was standing in the doorway. What kind of helmet? Like a... <laughs> there, there are illustrations included. Uh, like a fishbowl, you know, a uh, deep-sea diver, mm-hmm. like a 1950s version of a, of a spacesuit. Mm-hmm. Um, before people actually went to space. Right. This human, carry was wearing a, uh, yeah, basically a fishbowl on his head and a tight velvet jumpsuit. They love these soft fabrics. Oh, he, yeah, and he talks a lot about how tight this jumpsuit is and how it hugs the curves of his body. Uh, he, he tells us how built this man was. Like, he's, he's real masculine and muscular in his tight jumpsuit. And uh, he has long, lustrous blonde hair. It sounds like Valiant Thor-ish. It does very much sound like Valiant Thor, Carrie, and, and that's right. We've So we've sort of had gray, we had grays, we had gray kind of sort of aliens, sort of Roswell-y aliens before, and now we're once again, we're running into the blonde, um, beautiful white humans that uh, alien people always seem to run into. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously Travis sees this guy and he runs up to him and starts asking him just a ton of questions. Um, hey, who are you? Where am I? How did you get up here? Are there? Are you a human? I'm a human. Get me out of here. Can you get me out of here? <laughs> What's your workout regimen? These are the kinds of questions that he's asking. The man doesn't answer any, doesn't say anything. 
instead just silently grabbed Travis gently but firmly by the arm and led him to an elevator. Or at least he leads Travis to an elevator to a room like five feet by ten feet or something. And they just stand there for two minutes. Mm-hmm. And then the door opens again and, and they walk out in a different place. So it, elevator. And Travis, when he steps out again, he finds himself stepping into a huge room shaped like a, a giant quarter pipe with a lighted ceiling. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's uh, an arc, an arcing ceiling down from the from the wall down to the floor. And he found that he was stepping out of a much larger flying saucer than the one he had seen um, back after his day of logging. Uh, this ship was 60 feet across and 16 feet high. So I guess maybe a, maybe a two-story ship. It, it, it's like four times as big as the, uh, the other one. Mm-hmm. The sexy Nordic alien led him through a hangar of oval-shaped flying saucers and smooth, shiny, spherical craft about 45 feet across. That's another popular kind of kind of spaceship people see as orbs. Mm-hmm. Or um, cigar shapes. Mm-hmm. He didn't see any cigar shapes, although cigar shapes I've always kind of thought are uh, probably just elongated from the motion. Could be. Uh, the sexy Nord uh, led him through this hangar, down a hall, and into a room where there were three more white blonde people all sitting at a table. Uh, quoting Travis here, the two men had the same muscularity and the same masculine good looks as the first man. The woman also had a face and figure that was the epitome of her gender. It's the same as the Valiant Thor people. Mm-hmm. That's how they were described. Mm-hmm. Um, these three kind of naughty aliens stood up and walked over and firmly, but gently and not unpleasingly, pushed Travis down onto the table. And uh, he found a blue oxygen mask being placed over his mouth. Hmm. The next time Travis woke up, he was lying on the cold pavement on the road headed into Heber from the west. And it was five days and six hours after he had been taken. Wow. And we'll get into what happened next after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the listener, and welcome back to you, Caroline, and welcome back to Travis Walton, who, as we rejoin the narrative, is waking up on the cold Arizona pavement on the road headed into Heber. He's rejoining the narrative. He is rejoining. He's erasing himself from... He's rejoining the narrative. Uh, Travis says he was awakened by the cold breeze, lying on his stomach with his head resting on his arm, Um, looking up. He saw a light wink off on a 40-foot-wide saucer that paused and then shot straight up into the sky and away, totally silently. He was struck by the silence of the thing. Mm-hmm. 
Travis ran across the bridge into town, found a payphone, and called his sister's house around 12.05 a.m. Oh, by the way, all his clothes are on backwards. Oh, okay. When he woke up. That's the other thing he noticed. All his clothes were on backwards. So he ran across uh, the bridge into town. He found a payphone. He he called his sister's house around 12.05. It's just after midnight. And he yelled, They brought me back! Jesus. I'm out in Heber. Please, get somebody to come and get me. His brother-in-law, Grant, thought this was, quote, another cruel prank being played on the family and went to hang up the phone. Because remember, they've had five days of presumably this. Yeah. Uh, Grant, though, drove over to Travis's brother Dwayne's house and uh, he figured he should at least tell him. And after the two of them talked it out, they figured they should at least check it out just in case. And when they go, there was Travis. And here here in the in the book, he says, lights suddenly shone into the phone booth. So I guess he's taken shelter in the phone booth against <laughs> like the cold air of the night. The night or just wind. being adu- abducted again. He just wants to not be abducted again. Dwayne opened the glass door of the booth and helped me to my feet. So he is he's huddled in the corner of a phone booth. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, in the movie, he's also naked at this part. But again, the movie has some sensa- uh, sensational details. Mm. Um. So as Travis babbled about the horrible marshmallow-skinned abductors in the truck, his brother and brother-in-law explained to him that he had been missing, not for five hours, as he thought, but for five days. Yikes. When he was examined by doctors right after this, Travis was found to have no burns, no cuts, no marks, or any bruises of any kind on his body, even from when he uh, flew back and smacked into the ground uh, less than a week ago, Um, except for a tiny puncture-like wound near his elbow. Uh, The doctor said it was the kind of thing that would uh, be left by a syringe or a thorn. Hmm. Okay. But that was it. Otherwise, perfect condition. Now, while Travis was gone, because, again, five, there are five intervening days here, um, and his friends immediately became suspicious to the police when they yeah. showed up and said uh, they had seen their friend zapped by a light by an alien spaceship. And, and then, then totally peaced out. And then they peaced out, and then when they went back, he was gone. Alan, during the interrogation with the police, mentioned the spat between himself and Travis earlier in the day. And police were at this point following, although soft peddling, the theory that he had probably killed him in hot blood over this, like, fight they were having in the woods, and the other guys were covering for him. That's a big jump, but, I mean, there's no other leads at this point. Yeah, we, I mean, we mostly have Travis to believe on this. The police have never really, like, you know, taught, the police don't care enough to talk a lot about this after the fact. And it's... I guess a slightly embarrassing police incident. I mean, they're like sort of, sort of kind of bamboozled by these guys in that these guys lied to him for five days before the guy showed back up. Um, When Travis did show back up, police had some questions for him, but there was really no crime to investigate anymore. And um, everyone went home, but media swarmed the tiny town of Snowflake, Arizona. And Travis says he was bombarded by interview requests just constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the, again, in the movie, they actually have a uh, like a UFO report, a, a reporter with a flashbulb in Travis's <laughs> face. Like as they're trying to pull him out of the phone booth, there's already somehow somebody has already heard and, and come. Um, but that kind of gives you an idea of how how intense the media firestorm got. Sure. 
and I guess we see this with any of the alien cases. Uh, there's always a dust up of media activity that people usually don't enjoy when they get it. Mm-hmm. Travis says uh, that he shut those reporters down by signing an exclusive with the National Enquirer. Oh, dear. That most august of news uh, sources. Yeah. It was a great choice and a great vehicle for the story, though, because in 1976, Travis Walton and his buddies were awarded, collectively, $5,000 by the National Enquirer for uh, their best UFO story of the year. Oh. Uh, This was after the Aerial Phenomenon Research Association, and of course, you've seen uh, APRA's stuff Mm -hmm. in, um, in any alien story that you've investigated, Carrie. Um, Oh, sure. They're one of the foremost ufology groups. Uh, They had administered a polygraph to uh, Travis Walton, and he had passed with flying colors. Well, as you always remind me, Sean, it is a bunk science. It is bunk science. Um, It is not admissible in court, and that is for a reason. Um, Although it can tell you whether somebody's nervous, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, once early on, because remember, we're dealing with a missing time phenomenon here just like with betty and barney hill although here instead of hours we're missing days of travis walton's life i mean he remembers a pretty horrifying experience i mean some soft it doesn't stretch over five days of time right so not only does he have the horror of the memory that he does have there's also the well if that's what i do remember what did i suppress or what did i shut out or what else happened to me? Mm-hmm. So once, early on, Travis says he did try hypnotic regression to recover that lost time. But when he was in the hypnotic trance, he just got very afraid and, and kept saying, I don't want to remember. I don't want to remember. I fear for my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they gave up on that. He never tried hypnotic regression again. And uh, apparently he doesn't like, he doesn't even hang out at UFO conferences. He's not like into UFOs. He only shows up at UFO conferences if he's a featured, like, speaker. Right. So it's not something he's uh, dedicated his life to. He doesn't seem like he's nerdy about it. Okay. Well, that's a, probably a point in his camp for believability. Could be. Could be. Um, now, in 1993, as I said, some Hollywood producers approached Travis and Fire in the Sky was produced. Uh, using the Walton Experience, his book, as its source. Um, The movie stars Robert Patrick. Again, that's the T-1000. He's also in the X-Files. That's right. And as Travis himself, Carrie, you saw there, D.B. Sweeney. Mm Mm-hmm. From The Cutting Edge. From The Cutting Edge. Uh, Sweeney is also currently the voiceover guy for the Oprah Winfrey Network. So, oh. (laughs) I don't know why they're hiding that handsome face. Like, he's a a good-looking guy. I don't know why they're hiding that face behind a... uh, yeah, I feel like he was also, was he an eight men out? I think he was. Mm. Yeah, he was, he was big in the 90s. I'm, I'm glad he's still doing stuff with Oprah, I guess. <laughs> um, as you saw, Carrie, the sighting and abduction itself was played pretty straight in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. They The ship certainly looks different. It looks like kind of a really metal, honestly, like a, like a lava rock glowing in the middle. And then when it's going to shoot the beam, the rock like turns more molten. Yeah. Uh, that was really it's cool. Very, it's very lava-y. Yeah. I'm going to mention D&D again in this uh, <laughs> uh, and say that was, a, that was a D&D monster. It was awesome. But they see, they see the ship. The ship knocks Travis down. The loggers freak and get out of there. 
Um, but then in the movie, they get into a much deeper subplot about what's going on with them back in the town and all the paranoia around them and the suspicion and the loggers are kind of social pariahs and they all have to take polygraph tests, um, which most of them pass. Oh, most. And, yeah. One is inconclusive. So it's like, why put that in the movie then? Just, <laughs> well, you know, just keep it, just keep it clean this is a weird narrative. Uh, then. Travis turns up in the desert and calls from a gas station. Like I said, he's naked in the movie. Something for the ladies. Is he like butt-ass naked? Like full frontal naked? No, you don't see full frontal. Absolutely not. Okay. Well. I think you see his butt, though. All right. Uh, l- later on. <laughs> later on, it's dur- in, in this version, he remembers nothing of what happened. Mm-hmm. And it's later during a welcome home party that Travis has a sudden flashback to the spaceship. Oh, no. And here's where they really, really felt they had to turn the dials up for Hollywood here. Because mm-hmm. there wasn't a whole lot of action. I mean, Travis punched that kind of pillowy guy. <laughs> um, but in the movie, he awakens in a slimy cocoon. Ew. And it's like, like pressing against the slimy, the uh, slimy white walls of this cocoon that he can't get out of. He struggles and ultimately uh, breaks free. And finds that he's tethered to the wall of this like anti gravity room. Mm-hmm. It's like a like a kind of hive, a circular like a hive shaped room, uh, and there's other things, other humanoids cocooned to the walls. Now the way he finds out what's in these other cocoons, he is there's like an umbilical cord kind of a thing in his cocoon mm-hmm. that attaches to the wall. It doesn't seem like he has. It's not like the Matrix where he pulls a plug out of his head or something. So I don't know what the tube is attached to, but uh, he kind of uses it to go spelunking in this zero gravity room, but he can't figure out how to do it, right? And he kind of, whoa, like goofy or something, uh, clumsily smashes into one of the cocoons head first uh-huh. and gets like wrists deep inside of a rotting corpse. Ugh, what? So that's his first clue that like, shit's not cool here. You know, people are dying in these cocoons. Well, this is completely different than Travis's story. Yeah. Well, uh, so then he gets into a normal gravity room. He sort of swims down into a hallway and into a room with normal gravity. It's much smaller and closer and darker. And the walls are, for some reason, like the surface of the moon, like a cartoonish, like perfectly circular craters Mm -hmm. in the wall. I thought that was weird. Anyway, the, the room is full of alien spacesuits. And they have weird shaped heads, smaller heads than humans should have. And they're kind of small and slight and thin, these uh, spacesuits. And you know they're spacesuits because when Travis sees them, he says out loud, spacesuits. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, like it's Turtles in Time on the SNES or something. Uh, and then one of the aliens comes at him from behind in the spacesuit. Right. No. So it's like, oh, the spacesuit is alive. But it moves way too slowly to be uh, frightening. Mm-hmm. In any way, it kind of like creeps up behind him. Um, and then he turns and punches it and it <laughs> goes flying across the room. <laughs> well, at least we kept that. Yes, we did keep the the best part and Travis's most heroic moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but the creature, oh, he knocks the creature's helmet off. And they look, as you can see, Carrie, not quite as Travis described. I mean, the, 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 the flesh is more kind of flesh tony. They're looking very penile. They do look like 
penis men. Yes. There's no other way to describe it. <laughs> That's why I was laughing when I saw him just bobbing out of the bottom of the screen there. So he knocks off the helmet. He's horrified to see that it's a, a penis man. <laughs> and then this penis man is joined by another penis man. A phallic terrestrial. And they catch him and drag him down the hall to an exam room. Mm-hmm. In the uh, book, he escapes from the exam room with the little with the marshmallow man. Here, the marshmallow men bring him to the exam room. Uh, they cover the table and Travis. Well, hold on. I want to let you watch a little of this clip first, Carrie, because Please. this is where this movie is the most ratcheted up. And I think this is a pretty effective and utterly bizarre body horror sequence. So, so what's happening is the aliens have put some kind of a latex-looking... It looks like a, like a latex glove, yes. but over his entire body. And over the whole table. Uh, Travis is screaming the whole time. Um, he appears to be... Is he nude at this point? Because you, you can really see his, his junk pressed against <laughs> that uh, I uh, I wasn't looking. Um, it's, I just feel bad ugh. for him. Yep, and now he has some kind of a like a greenish goo stuffed in this his mouth. This is like a Cronenberg movie. Then a mouth expander, and then a hose is being just ratcheted down his throat. Uh, one hole was cut for Travis to breathe out, and one for some reason, one for him to witness all of this through one eye. Uh, he gets the needle stuck in his neck, and now they're going to hold his eyelids open, Carrie. Well, first they squirt milk in it. You gotta squirt milk in the eye, and we, we of course, that beautiful artistic camera eye <laughs> shot with the milk washing over the frame. And now a probe comes down. <laughs> TikTok. They, TikTok. Re- they really ratcheted it up. You don't remember this part from my description of the book? No. Oh, here comes the spider-like arms of this probe machine. And I have scarred Carrie for life. For some, so is it getting power from his body? This eye probe machine. It's there's a lot of weird alien technology, and it's not totally clear what's going there's on. There's a lot of attachments. This is like Inspector Gadget. But that's the coolest kind of science fiction sequence like this, right? Like we shouldn't know what's going on with these weird aliens. But then this needle, I think, goes right into his uh, pupil. So Jesus. So that's different. Yeah, it's from, different. From when they just put the blue mask on his face and he passed out. Yeah. And he came back and he only had like a little pinprick. This looks like he'd be torn apart. Yes. So uh, if, and I'm sorry, I, I can never tell if that's good radio or bad radio because I was partially just very invested in that <laughs> clip. Um, but for the listener, yeah, they cover him in this like full body condom. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, and then there's like goo that's forced into his mouth. That was Gross like, looking goo. It looks like sewage. It looked to me like translucent cottage cheese. Like if cottage cheese was a green translucent <laughs> color. <laughs> Jello color, but it, it didn't look like Jello. Uh, then a metal expander is stuck in there like it's a BDSM orthodontist. Uh-huh. Uh, and that facilitates a length of metal hose that is ratcheted down his throat. Then there's another thing that gets plugged into his neck. And then the eye probe comes from the ceiling. 
yeah, and the needle comes out of that, and it looks like it's going to poke him in the eye. It's pretty horrifying. And appropriately, uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, <laughs> a clip from that started playing on YouTube right after, uh, that was the autoplay. So that makes sense. <laughs> and as you could hear, dear listener, Travis is, of course, awake and screaming literally the entire time, that whole scene. Mm-hmm. And then, in the movie, he wakes up and naked five days later. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the movie, basically. What? Two, yeah, if it catches up with Travis again two years later, and we see him make amends with his buddy Mike Rogers. They had a fight earlier in the movie, because, like, why did you guys leave me? Uh-huh. Even though Mike was the only guy who said he wanted to go back. Well, he's the main guy, though. But, <laughs> he like, Mike is living as a recluse ever since they... Uh, stopped being friends it's almost like a mary she's an old maid you know <laughs> like his life has totally fallen apart and we see travis and him make uh, amends and that's the end of the movie roll credits okay weird like structure like the first half of the movie you don't get any alien stuff at all it's just the friends back in the and, town and then you get the most alien stuff all alien stuff and then no we don't really consider what it means or learn anything it's just like and that was fucked up huh <laughs> yeah crazy uh it's weird i kind of recommend giving it a look fire in the sky all right uh now do you think travis walton was telling the truth i have no way of knowing um what i find the most intriguing was that he was really missing for that span of time and like what was he doing that whole time if he wasn't I, I mean, I don't know. Like, what? where was he? Sure. I mean, a buddy's hunting cabin or something. Like, you go wherever. Well, he would need accomplices in yeah, that he, case. Yeah, he has six of them. Because there are six guys who say they saw the spaceship, right? So if, if it's a lie, they're all lying. But did they... I mean, Travis wrote the book and everything and, and did the movie, but did they profit out of it? Or was the only profit that they made the, the $5,000 that was split between them with the National Enquirer? As far as I know, the only profit is the five thousand dollars i don't know if it seems worth it no uh, there's a there's a documentary recently that travis like i don't know if he's a producer on it but he heavily promotes it and i think he sells it through his website Mm -hmm. and in that he's got like some of his buddies from that day like walking around the clearing where they say it happened like yeah and then we sure did we thought i think i i think it was me who said he's dead (laughs) i don't know it's it's a long time for what seven people to to keep the same story uh, I suppose. How often do you think they're asked about it nowadays, though? Probably more than you'd expect. Yeah, probably. Certainly difficult. him, but I mean the others, too. Um, now, journalist Philip Class studied the case in his book, UFO Abductions, A Dangerous Game, in 1989. Now, Class is a, he was a big skeptic writer mm-hmm. he actually also self-published the i feel like we've talked about him before i'm certain we have uh, he self-published the skeptics ufo newsletter <laughs> in 76 volumes from 1989 to 2003 uh, and issue number 50 by the way all about travis hmm. i'm sure there's more issues that were dedicated exclusively to travis but uh, unfortunately a lot of the um a lot of the archive has uh, withered away. Mm. Dead links all over the place. Yeah. Unfortunately. Anyway, class figured these guys had made all of this up as an excuse for the pending incomplete job on this big contract they had won. 
and the work wasn't in fact completed. Well, how could it be? They were too busy looking for Travis and dealing with the police investigations. Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently, according to Philip so Class, they preemptively came up with a fake story to talk about why they couldn't finish a job that they couldn't finish because Travis was missing. Well, on why they on the fifth that makes no sense. On the fifth, when Travis disappeared. The guys had until November 10th, five more days to finish their contract or they were going to be docked 10% of their pay unless the delay came because of an act of God, quote unquote. Okay. So Philip Class's supposition but is- did they, they get ju- any pay at all? Well, I don't think that this worked for them, no. Well, no, I'm, I'm just saying, did they get any pay at all because they didn't finish. Oh, yeah. It said they were just docked 10%. I think they like had to finish the work, but because it was going to be late, they got less pay. I don't know. It seems like a big jump. It could be. An could. act of God, and then it's an alien? Like, that's where you go to with it? Act of... I mean, what else would be an act of God that would prevent the lumber from that you could fake? I'm sure there's other stuff <laughs> besides aliens. Okay. So, class isn't done yet. He also found an interview with Dwayne Walton and Mike Rogers. Uh, Dwayne Walton is Travis's brother. Mm-hmm. There was also a Dwayne who was out there that day, but this is a different Dwayne and a different spelling. That was a W and this is a U. Ufologist Fred Sylvanus, who we've definitely talked about in connection with Betty and Barney, among other cases, uh, talked to Dwayne Walton and Mike Rogers on November 8th, 1975. So three days into the disappearance. Mm-hmm. And Class points out that uh, they were both super relaxed and not worried about where Travis was at all. Uh, Dwayne said that the two brothers had always loved UFOs and always talked about them and always said that if one of them got abducted, the other one would, uh, he'd make the aliens come and abduct the other one too so they could hang out together with the aliens. Hmm. Interesting. And he told this uh, ufologist that, oh, I wouldn't worry about Travis. He's having the experience of a lifetime. I don't think he's in any danger at all. He'll turn up. All I can say is I wish I was with him. Interesting. And uh, Phil, I mean, that's not a smoking gun in any direction, but Philip Class's thing is just like, this is three days after he's vanished. Yeah, it's certainly weird. And even abduction scenarios are usually like, like Betty and Barney is a couple hours, right? Mm-hmm. So even if you think your brother was taken by a UFO, it would be weird and maybe concerning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Class also, now the that thing about the polygraph with the National Enquirer and APRO, he really did take that polygraph. He didn't really did pass it. Um, but Philip Class found uh, he had also taken like an earlier polygraph, almost a practice run. Oh. A guy named Jack McCarthy had come up from Phoenix, Arizona. He was apparently one of the foremost guys for polygraphy in the area. And uh, he examined Walton and his test result was, quote, gross deception. Oh. And I loved reading Cla- Class's description of it because he says... Uh, he has McCarthy saying that Travis kept holding his breath for 10 to 15 seconds before answering a yes or no question. Oh, is that okay? Travis says that is a, um, he, he calls it a respiratory quirk. Like he holds his breath before he talks? Yeah, before he answers a question that he doesn't know the answer to. <laughs> respiratory quirk. Yeah, for what it's worth, he does seem like a nice man and a, a, a fairly humble man, you know, quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see he was on, uh, I don't know if I, this podcast doesn't need 
promotion, uh, but uh, uh, he was on the Joe that Joe Rogan uh, podcast in 2019, I think. Mm-hmm. And he's just a pretty deadpan guy. Just a lot of the things he says are about aliens. Right. Class also points out that the date of Travis's abduction was a few weeks after the original airing of the UFO incident, which was the NBC TV movie that dramatized the Betty and Barney Hill abduction story. And oh, with James Earl Jones. With J- with J.E.J. And you can see our Betty and Barney Hill episode for more on that, the making of that movie. Uh, but basically, Class says that abduction and UFO reports, I think we said that in that episode too mm-hmm. um abduction and ufo reports went way up across the country after that movie came out because the idea was just in people's heads now well it's like when the exorcist came out a lot more devil stuff was floating around exactly um so that's about it except just as a postscript and again polygraphs are meaningless so mm-hmm. we shouldn't count travis's failed one against him nor should we count his uh, a past one in his favor. Mm-hmm. But just as a postscript, in 2008, because of the controversy around his polygraphs, presumably, Travis was invited to appear on the Fox TV, on the uh, Fox Network primetime game show, The Moment of Truth. Mm-hmm. This was the show where um, there's actually a murder story connected with this show as well, which we should uh, that's cover That's why sometime. it sounds familiar to me. This was a terrible concept for a show. It's a, a show in which contestants answer sensitive questions... Well, connected to a lie detector, you know, a polygraph, in front of their friends and loved ones oh, no. um, for increasingly large cash prizes. Okay. And Travis said he didn't want to do the show, and all of his friends and his representation were telling him not to. Um, but Fox kept saying they would, like, massage the game to get him more prize money and make the questions not too hard. And he basically, at some point, couldn't say no to a possible payday, mm-hmm. is, I think, almost his exact wording. And... um Well, in any case, the $100,000 question was, were you abducted by a UFO on November 5th, 1975? And Travis answered yes and lost the game. Oh, no. Um, So again, let's not hold... Bunk science. Yeah, bunk science, let's not hold that against him. That's tough. It's it's fallen on your face in a big spot. Yeah, that must have been difficult. He has a lot to say about their methodology and about how they, they do bad polygraphs on that show, but... Well, it's not still going, so I mean, who knows? I think we can all agree it's a bad show. Yeah. Um, So, that is all I've got for you on Travis Walton, Carrie. What do you think? Gosh, I don't know what to think. Do you want to watch that movie? I do want to watch the movie. I mean, I'm not going to watch it as a a real version of this event because it's completely different than what he described. Yeah. But um, it looks wild the pacing i'm gonna be honest the pacing is tough but maybe you know maybe you hit the skip button once or twice in the <laughs> first half and then the back nine flies yeah back nine hours <laughs> yeah it's a really long <laughs> it's a mini it's, it's a mini series um yeah i really don't know what to think i think it would be hard for any large group of men to agree on a conspiracy which is uh why it's hard to believe any cons- conspiracies sometimes right it's it's the more people more people get involved, the more wieldy, unwieldy it becomes, you know? Yes, this is, I mean, seven guys keeping their U- UFO story straight is, is different from, like, the government faking the moon. No, no I know that. But it's the same kind of principle, especially if some of these guys, 
I mean, this is the 70s. You're going to be getting looked at weird for saying that you saw a UFO and all this stuff. And you, you, six guys have to be okay with that. Travis, he's in the middle of it. So he would have had to be okay with it from the get-go. But like... But these other guys aren't famous. They're I, not famous, but I'm sure people ask them about all the time, especially locally. Yeah, locally. I, I bet when they meet somebody, or I bet maybe ghost... Uh, freaky people ufo people who like freaky stuff i don't mean that people are freaky ufo people uh, people like us will probably come into town and ask him if they can find him um he probably gets stuff online and calls and letters all the time but in person i bet not that much because he's not famous i already forgot his name who any of these guys anyone except mike anyone except well mike Dwayne and the other Dwayne. yeah but i don't know their last names you know, Dwayne <laughs> Walton. So, so I don't, I bet it doesn't, I bet they don't get bothered that much. Yeah. I don't know. I really, I really don't know what to think. The biggest question is where was Travis if he wasn't abducted and okay, it could be a hunting cabin or whatever, but do we have any leads as to what it, where he could have been, you know? Uh, no, I do. Even Philip class doesn't like, suggest where travis might have yeah, been during that time that's but the biggest question people can you know do you want a cabin i can get you a cabin there are paper trails if any of these guys owned a cabin you would know if he knew anyone who owned a cabin like some of them would have dug it up at some point yeah, but they're in like arizona don't you think somebody he knows owns a nearby vacation house or fishing house or hunting house or no i don't know the vacation house trends in arizona <laughs> in 1975 i could look it up I'm just saying they're in a small town rural community i'm not saying that i totally believe the story i'm just saying the biggest question is where well, did if he this go? didn't happen where did he go yeah i just uh, yeah and i agree that that's i agree that that's a question i don't i don't know that it's that hard to answer I haven't seen any interviews with him, so I'm not going to like disparage him or his believability. I'm not disparaging Travis or his um, believability. No, either. I know. I know. So uh, I really, I genuinely don't know what to think. I mean, with Betty and Barney Hill, I could hear the horror and terror in Barney's voice from those recordings. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly convincing because this is not an actor. This is just a regular guy. And you're, you're really hearing him go through it. Yeah. Tra- Travis is always very flat, but every mm-hmm. interview I've seen with him is obviously way after the fact right. too. So it's hard to tell if maybe he's just um, become used to it with time. Although he still won't go for that hypnotic regression because he still professes he's terrified to know what happened in the other hours. Could be. I mean, and that's something that might be easy to fake you know, you pretend to get hypnotized and you start talking about, oh, the aliens, you know. Um, so maybe maybe the fact that he won't do that and won't kind of lend credence to his story by faking this, you know, hypnotic regression or whatever. Maybe it's a, a point in his favor of believability. I don't know. Now, and he does, f- you know, fight for his story. He does. He's, he's, he's involved in that documentary uh, that you can buy through his website. He's re-released the book several times. You can buy that through his website. Um, not that I'm saying you need to or have to or should. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he makes he does make money off it and he does go to conventions and do speaking stuff. Yeah. So sometimes people who have been abducted say like, why would I have told this story? It ruined my life. I didn't want this. But, you know, if you if you keep 
pursuing the speaking engagements and, and interviews on Joe Rogan's podcast and stuff, mm-hmm. then you do enjoy interfacing with people about this to some degree. Uh, so he's getting something out of it. I don't know that it made him fabulously wealthy yeah. or anything like that. I don't know. I don't know what to believe. Um, I would, uh, I would say, Travis, if if you're listening, I, uh, I I respect you and I'd love to know more. Uh, but he's probably not listening because, again, I don't think he's that into UFO stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, hope you're doing well. Hope you're doing well, Travis. <laughs> um, and listeners. Let us know on, uh, I'm going to start doing this. I'm going to start saying this. Isn't this, this is good business, right? Listeners, let us know on social media, uh, what you think about Travis Walton. No, forget that actually, because I won't see it there. Uh, come make our discord lively (laughs) and tell us what you think about, uh, Travis Walton. Uh, cause that I will see, and I would love to talk to you about it. All right. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listeners, we wanted to bring you some news about us this week. Uh, Like we mentioned a couple weeks ago, this upcoming weekend, July 16th and 17th, will be the second annual Paracon. Oh, get at us. (laughs) Yeah, we'll be there. We'll have a table there. We'll be probably right near uh, Father of the Pod, Paul Ferrante, who you heard on the Gettysburg Ghosts episode. He'll Mm. be selling his books and will be selling um, some small bits of merch, mostly stickers with uh, new and old favorite designs. Yes, absolutely. I'm really excited about some of the ones we're bringing, uh, like the Fresno Nightcrawler sticker. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our friend Alyssa, who designed our cover art, she also made some White Lady of Union Cemetery stickers, Satanic Panic stickers, uh, Stop Fat Shaming Bigfoot. These are all going to be shirts on Public as well. UFO abduction, speaking of uh, Travis Walton. Yeah, and uh, you could also get, you know, our cover art and uh, logo and all that fun stuff. And we'll be there ready to talk to uh, anyone who wants to come by. About anything. (laughs) But ideally weird stuff. Well, I mean, if you want to just come and tell me how you liked Top Gun, we can talk about it. Sure. Uh, So this Paracon will be at the Ansonia Armory on Saturday and Sunday. Doors open at 11 a.m. daily for general admission. Um, I think there's a VIP admission that you can pre-buy for 10 a.m. And um, it's going to feature a lot of speakers and uh, a lot of, you're going to have mediums, people doing tarot readings, and also a lot of vendors, a lot of really cool sellers will be there. Yeah, and that means great uh, 
t-shirts and uh posters and vinyl i I don't mean like sex gear i mean like uh (laughs) records yes uh but also like like uh (laughs) animals in formaldehyde and ouija boards and you know lots of horror merchandise t-shirts uh from shows posters so yeah it's gonna be a great time and um there's some special guests this year there's the, the amazing Kreskin, who's like a like a mentalist. Yeah. Uh, do you know, is he doing a talk or is he doing his shtick? Because I, I want him to do his shtick. Uh, I'm not sure. There's also the after party, which I don't know if is sold out yet, but he's going to be there probably doing some stuff. Well, that's where we're going to ask him about Johnny Carson over a drink. Right. And John Zaffis will be there. He's a, a local guy. He's related to the Warrens, and he also was the subject of the... It was either travel or discovery show Haunted Collector. So he has his own little haunted museum over in Stratford. Yes. Uh, yes. Over in Stratford. And uh, I went to school with his son, Chris, who was also on that show. Mm-hmm. Hi, Chris, if you happen to be listening. <laughs> yeah. So there's going to be a lot of great people there. A lot of people to talk to, uh, talks to listen to, things to buy. So come with some cash and uh, have, have some fun with us. Absolutely. And if you want to learn more, you can go to paracon.org. That's P-A-R-A-C-O-N-N dot org. Um, and, and, you know, get some more information. But again, Ansonia, Connecticut at the Armory, Saturday and Sunday, the 16th and 17th, starting at 11 a.m. We'll be there. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and our newest patron, Ira. Carrie, uh, do you think people listen this deep into the show? How about this? Listener, if you're, hey, you, <laughs> just you, don't tell the others, just come to the, come to the Discord channel and tell me if you well, listen. Well, they have to be a patron to do, to do that. We only give patrons the Discord link? Yes. I think we should reconsider that policy. Okay. <laughs> we can talk about that off the air. <laughs> All right. L- listen, I, I want to know if, if you're actually listening this deep into the show, because I know for a lot of podcasts that I listen to, I probably cut it off once I realize they're in the, the wrap-up. Shoot us a tweet or an Instagram DM. I will see them. Oh, yeah, because if nothing else, I want to know if, like, maybe we should never make important announcements at the back here, or maybe we should always make important, uh, important announcements so that people feel like they want to listen to have to listen to the end every time force them to listen to the end (laughs) okay well for everyone else see you next thursday show created by sean and carrie mccabe music by kyle ryan you can find kyle at his youtube channel music is a verb ain't it scary has been brought to you by killer podcasts and is a production of long boy media one of scotland's most notorious unsolved murders To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now.
wherever you get your podcasts.